and welcome to the Molyneux View podcast with me, Jackie Oatley, and your Wolverhampton Wanderers correspondent for The Athletic, Tim Spears. Hello, Tim. Hello. On today's podcast, a guest we're very much looking forward to hearing from. You may not ever have heard him speak before, but you may well be aware of his name. It's John Goff, director of Wolverhampton Wanderers and one of only three board members there and a lifelong fan of the club as well. His first match Billy Wright's last. Plus, we'll be hearing all the latest Wolves news, of course, from Tim. That's in just a moment. And we'll also hear your Twitter questions as well. Plenty of those too. First of all, hello, Tim. How are you keeping? What's that behind you I can see on the Zoom? Is that a a new blanket making its debut on the podcast? (laughs) It's boiling outside. What are you doing with a blanket, man? It's just a throw. I think I I was was using it last night. Oh, God, you put me on the spot there. Um, Have you you been to bed or did... Did you just stay there after your your last night's Netflix viewing and podcast starting? I was just saying to our producer, I don't actually know what day it is anymore, except for Monday, because it's podcast day. Um, But other than that, but yeah, hey, we're plowing on. Google, we do have a demarcation of time around here because Monday to Friday is homeschooling. So there's been a bit of tension in our house today because Uh-oh. my husband's been in the kitchen homeschooling the six and nine year old and getting really frustrated because the instructions from the school are clear as mud. And it's hard enough at the best of times. But how people cope with multiple kids, jobs, oh, work. It. Some people have like no gadgets, one gadget, whatever, and having to do all these things. So people probably listening to this, a lot of them will no doubt share in the frustration. So it's uh, I feel quite guilty locking myself away in the lounge and talking to you about wolves. <laughs> it feels like a much easier gig. But anyway, um, I've got something to show you on the Zoom chat, Oh, Tim. okay. You see? Oh, hello. What's this? I sneakily... Well, you know, you don't need to buy clothes really when you're at home um, or, or I've wear had various them. um <laughs> or wear them well since I've introduced the zoom on a Monday for the last two weeks you have actually had to get dressed that's once a week true. haven't you yeah. <laughs> yeah I get dressed at two o'clock every Monday now <laughs> that's how you know it's Monday is you've got clothes on it's <laughs> a good shout no um but yeah so I, I did make a new purchase from the Wolves Club shop um it's a rather fetching sort of hooded jacket thing which was in the sale that's how I can justify it but um um I did also buy my daughter a little um t-shirt and I bought one of those new face mask things that obviously for charitable reasons not because I think it would be just a brilliant thing to go to the local budgeons in it is the latter oh what the the wolf mask yeah um I I haven't bought one yet they're only the eight pound um, Plus postage and packing. <laughs> I'd only just bought my daughter a, a Wolves t-shirt from the extremely limited range of girls and women's clothing. I have to get that little dig in there. Or, or, or friendly suggestion that perhaps it could be expanded beyond one or two items. It's very, very okay. little choice. My daughter was saying, is there anything pink? And I said, no, there's a gold t-shirt that fits you. That's it in the entire shop. Um, but yeah, so are you going to get a mask? I think so. But well, possibly. But don't you have to, don't you have to be clean shaven to wear one? I, I, I'm not what sure. What are you trying to say? What have I got to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm only stocked up on the Imac, but I can see if they've got it on the on the Sainsbury's online. Maybe I don't know. I've never looked. Well, this makes me curious about Wolves. You see, because they've sent masks to all the staff and all the players and everything. How on earth is Nuno going to wear a mask? Well, talking of Nuno and footballers. We have some news shortly before we started recording. Some very welcome news in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, players are back next Monday, um, training ahead of a possible return to action. We all hope in the next kind of couple of months or so. Um, so they're returning from overseas at the weekend. Obviously, a lot of them have gone home to to be with their families during this time. You can't blame them for doing that. So Nuno, 
Matinho, Vinagra, Neves, they've all been back in Portugal with their families. So they'll return this weekend and everyone will be at Compton next Monday. So this will be in a, in a kind of a staggered return. So they'll do like individual sessions next Monday. And the way it's been described to me is basically like the first day of pre-season. And you can't forget that it's been eight weeks without any kind of football for these players. And some of them will, I mean, they've, we know, having spoke to Connor Cody on the pod a few weeks ago, that they've been given um, individual training schedules to keep fit at home. They're all wearing watches that are monitored by the club who can keep an eye on their movements. But they're still going to return in varying degrees of, of fitness and they certainly won't be, you know, match fit. So there'll be a lot of testing done on Monday, primarily for the virus itself. Everyone will be tested for coronavirus. Um, but also physically, they'll go through their normal uh, physical tests that they would do on the first day of pre-season and there'll be a skeleton staff there not many not many staff at all but there will be people to oversee what they're doing mostly physical conditioning and running and then a week later so uh, a week on Monday they're hoping to do small sessions in, in small groups and obviously this is all going to be while still adhering to, to social distancing so they'll be kept apart but perhaps you know I, I don't know you can envisage passing drills in in small groups and whatnot so um it'll be different it'll be strange they've got to drive to compton in their own kit fully kitted out and then take that kit home and wash it themselves which is uh as someone tweeted me earlier is, is a hark back to the graham turner days when they'd all have to wash their own kit um <laughs> and train on the car park on a friday yeah times exactly, have changed yeah. a little on that front yeah so it'll so it'll be unusual but it's positive sign for sure that they're starting to return to some kind of normality and the players, from what I gather, are all unanimously delighted to come back. By all accounts, you know they've missed each other. They've missed each other's company. I've, I've spoke to a couple of players who've said exactly the same. You know they, they they miss each other. They're used to spending most of their time with each other. You know they see the, they see each other more than they see their families normally. So um, so that's good as well. Um, they're all they're all looking forward to coming back, which is great. Positive start. You know they want to be there. And and hopefully in a couple of months we can we can see some football again because it's the tide does seem to be turning slightly in that direction. It does. Eight weeks, as you say, Tim, on Thursday since Wolves last played a first team game. That was Olympiacos away behind closed doors. It's ten and a half weeks since Wolves fans last celebrated a goal at Molyneux. Oh, that was the three oh. nil Raúl Jiménez goal against Norwich on February the twenty third. Bearing in mind Blimey. there weren't any goals against Brighton at home, and. Um, so that's a long time, isn't it? Not a week short of a whole close season that they had last summer, although the players had trained together in that time, hadn't they? Which they haven't this time. I mean, what effect do you think this long break without any contact could have on them? I mean, both physically and mentally, of course. I think mentally more more than physically. And we spoke we spoke briefly last week about how players may be considering their their options for the future. Maybe this has been a time to, to reflect less so much perhaps in Wolves case but I think what what really will be important is how everybody views this batch of games as and when they come up because if you're if you're a team in 12th or 13th and you haven't got much to play for there's very little motivation from an individual player's point of view to perhaps want to come back and finish these games you know when there's when there's when there's very little to play for in terms of Europe or relegation or whatnot and as we know kind of so much of football form is is sparked and led by motivation and, and desire, and I think you'll find that some clubs just won't fancy it, to be honest. And I think that I think we'll see some 
quite startling uh, differences in form when the teams come back that aren't necessarily um, led by their positions in the table. And in this regard, I think Wolves are pretty well placed, to be honest, as um, the players are very confident in the club and what and what's and what's been done for them and how they've been looked after. You know, they, they just want things to be simplified so they can concentrate on just the football, right? And I think Wolves have been very good at that. They've looked after them from day one, taken such good care of them. And I think that they'll feel confident and safe in the club's hands that everything will be done um, to look after them as the weeks go on. And they can just concentrate on the games because, you know, Wolves have got a lot to play for. So, so hopefully they'll come back firing because they've got a decent run of games as and when they happen and obviously a lot to play for in Europe as well. When you say decent run of games, they have played the big boys home and away already. So there's that real concern, as you mentioned before, about it being decided on points per game, because that would punish Wolves, bearing in mind that the less onerous run in. But just in terms of what's next, the bigger picture, fantastic article on The Athletic by Matt Slater, David Ornstein, Laurie Whitwell and Adam Crafton. Uh, called Premier League Return Explained, Operation Restart. And they say, according to sources, almost every member of staff has contributed with clubs, broadcast partners, medical experts, police and friends overseas all pitching in. One part common sense, one part best practice, two parts blue sky thinking with a twist of good luck. It's a cocktail for these strange times. So those are the, the different areas of input and expertise that have gone into this project restart. From your understanding and what you know of people you've spoken to, when are we likely to come back? Or are we waiting for Boris Johnson this Thursday, really, May the 7th, with a big announcement? That's the thing. And I think there's already a suggestion that that, they may, that might be put back to the weekend. Actually, Boris is... Um speech and the advice to what happens next I I think like I said earlier we are seeing a path towards this happening and a couple of the really key things that need to be sorted out is is testing um it's got to be safe safety and and the health of the players and staff has got to be paramount above everything else which I think it will be I can think it'll be done right and venues as well venues very important um Lots of talk about neutral venues not being suitable is apparently kind of being pushed by teams in relegation trouble saying about the integrity of the league, you know, you've had 28 games home and away and how can you have the last 10 on neutral ground? I mean, I don't really see that as an issue, to be honest. You know, if you want to get the games done, get them done. And there's an awful lot of self-interest here. And, you know, you need 14 clubs out of 20 to vote certain motions through and they they may come unstuck on a few of those things because teams in relegation trouble will want the season to, to be voided rather than risk being relegated and lose so much money. So, um, but yeah, venues-wise as well, there's a lot to take into account there. Southampton and Newcastle may be too far for everyone to travel to. Um, there are things to take into account, like grounds being um, based in populated areas. Um, so, you know, you'd prefer to have a ground like Shrewsbury, for example, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere near, near the motorway, where there's not there's not much of a dense dense population around. Also, also things maybe you wouldn't think of like vantage points. If there are vantage points at a ground, um, where fans could maybe gather to to try and sneak a peek at what's going on. So Molyneux's got a couple of hills around the corners where where that could happen. So all sorts of things have got to be taken into account. But there is and a VAR desire to, as well. Yes. That's right, because yeah, if, if Leagues 1 and 2 are avoided, for example, you think you could maybe use Sunderland's ground or Shrewsbury's ground, but there's 
again, little things like floodlights, all the floodlights have got to be of a certain strength, which I remember Wolves had to improve theirs when they got promoted to the Premier League, believe it or not. Um, so yeah, there is a desire to get it done, but it's financially motivated more than anything else. And I think that's the difference between the Premier League and maybe the French and Dutch leagues, which we've seen finished already, is that to give the example of um, Huddersfield last season earned more money in prize money and TV money than PSG, who of course won the French League, which just puts it in perspective really that things are a little different in this country and money will be the main issue and the main desire to get this done from, from a lot of people. But um, but if there is some good news from the government this week or, or perhaps at the weekend, then um, I think a plan will be announced and the fact that Wolves are uh, returning to training and a few other clubs are considering doing the same or are doing the same, then um, they think it's getting closer, so that's a good sign. That was a really good article explaining all those different things and the three leagues they talked about that had ended their season interestingly they say all had brand new broadcast partners starting next season so they didn't want to mess next season around which is different in this country and of course there's the concern about clubs having to potentially pay back tv money something they're desperate to avoid and of course the legal issues but that's maybe for other clubs to consider so those dates in theory, Thursday, May the 7th, the Boris announcement you're saying could be put back with a view to potentially returning to training officially on May the 18th and then June the 12th being penciled in as the first game. But that is only if all those other boxes are ticked that have to happen first. And in terms of other news, Tim, um, your articles this week, four out, none in, but it works. Why four senior staff have left, but none has been replaced. You've talked about that on the podcast and, and explained that it's working for the club at the moment, the fact that they're not having a replacement for Kevin Thelwell as sporting director. But I was wondering, and somebody's tweeted this actually, sorry I don't have his name to hand, but um, are they looking to replace the head of medical, Phil Haywood? This was in the story actually. Uh, So from what I gather, club doctor Matt Perry, who's been there many, many, many years, must have been about 20 years now, um, officially. I think he's not in like a part-time role, uh, part-time GP slash part-time at Wolves, but now he's full-time club doctor at Wolves. From what I gather, he's likely to take over Phil Hayward's position as head of medical in more of an administrative role. He's very well respected at a club. Nuno and Jeff Shee very much um, respect his opinion. So from what I gather, that's, that will happen and they're recruiting at the moment for a replacement club doctor for as and when Matt Perry takes over Phil Hayward's old role old role after he left for LA Galaxy in the, in January. So yeah, no, I, th- I thought it was um, an important moment or important time to kind of um, explain what it is the club are doing in terms of how in the past 18 months, yes, Phil Hayward has left, Kevin Thalwell, Laurie Dalrymple, and Gareth Prosser, who was the head, who was the academy boss, you know, they've all left in the last eighteen months, and they've, there's been no external replacements for any of them. So I just wanted to kind of put that put that into words as to why that is, and, and each circumstance is different individually, but as a whole, um, there has been a bit of a restructure. Um, in simplified terms, they've gone from like a pyramid structure where Jeff would speak to Laurie and Kevin. And then they would speak to the people below them, and so on and so on. Now it's more of a it's more of a flat line instead of a pyramid now. So eight or nine heads of department will answer direct to Jeff Shee. So it's part of a structural change. You've got to remember that they did change the structure when Fosin came in because Jez Moxie used to do a lot of this himself, and then his job was sort of split into two for Kevin Thelwell and Laurie Darimple. So they're sort of going back the other way now. But Jeff Shee obviously got a very important role at the heart of everything, and um, 
and it works for them, you've got to say. It does indeed. Also, uh, another article about Wolves' best loan signings. I mean, you had a few in there. You had Alan Nielsen. I just couldn't believe you didn't mention Jesus Vallejo. I mean, he was nowhere to be seen. Absolutely nowhere. This highly <laughs> talented defender uh, from Real Madrid. I might do one on the worst ones, actually. Because there are far more to choose from. Simon, do you remember Simon Coleman? Oh, he was dreadful. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm sorry if you're listening, Simon, but he bought with Jackson oh. as well. Terrible. Shocker. He's just been released, hasn't he, by United, I think. Has he? Yeah. After all great. that. God, I think that'd be a rather longer, more detailed piece. <laughs> but yeah. the Vallejo one, I find extraordinary. Unless he was just completely devoid of confidence. I mean, I, I remember reporting on the the Chelsea heavy defeat by Chelsea earlier this season as a, a defender he was like a cloud for the attackers to try and get past and yeah, I really well, hope it was, it was a confidence issue there must be something like that in it because he was nothing like the player you'd expect him to be yeah exactly uh, Spain's under 21 captain and Real Madrid defender you expected so much more from him uh, I think he just really struggled with the, with the intensity of the league you know so some, some people do and some people don't and uh, by all accounts, he was incredibly hard working. Uh, you, you know, you always hear the line about first at the training ground and last to leave, but it, that, that was true in his case. And a lovely, lovely guy. Everyone had everyone, everyone at the club spoke so highly of him as a person. But on the pitch, yeah, he just his his legs turned to jelly, didn't they? Yeah, they really did. We've had a few tweets. We'll do a lot more at the end of the pod. Um, but just before we speak to our first guest, official Chris Jones has asked, with the prospect of the entirety of next season being behind closed doors, surely there's no greater opportunity to redevelop Molyneux ASAP. Tim, you keep saying that Fosun won't see a return for a long time, hence their reticence. So by that logic, it could never happen. Yeah, I'd, um, I've had a few tweets along those lines, people asking, well... Uh, there's time to do it now. You know, there's been eight weeks without football. You know, why not knock the Steve ball down and, and, and do it while there's no football being played? But it's it's not as simple as that. Time is time is not an issue. You know, if you think about the normal gap you get between the end of one season and the start of the next, the end, this, uh, end of the season will be in May and then you've got almost three months until August to do it. So there's more than enough time to really get going on that work in a normal off-season but they weren't planning on on doing that this off season anyway. You know they've they've made their decision for now that they don't want to fully redevelop Molyneux, and most of uh, the majority of that is 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 um, is led by cost in terms of they don't think they'll see a, a return on their investment by knocking down the steeple in the South Bank um, for a couple of decades. That's their that's their judgment. That's their opinion. So what they're doing is trying to make smaller improvements um, to what is an an aging and heavily outdated stand. The steeple stands. I mean, it's. Um, I can't believe it's still there, to be honest. But, um, but you can see successive eras and owners have had real problems with how to deal with it and improve it, and it's been there since what 1979. And Foson are just the latest to have problems with it in terms of um, the way it's built. It's on. It's on, sort of on a hill, isn't it? And you've got the university buildings behind it, and you've got the subway, and all sorts of logistical problems that they think will be too expensive to um, to do for now. You say how old it is, 1979. What about Goodison Park? My goodness, whenever we go there. I mean, I love yeah. it in terms of history. It's like walking back into a 1980s FA Cup match, isn't it, whenever you go there. I love it, but my goodness, does that creak and it's not fit for purpose. But uh, Gary Stewart, uh, talk of the whole of next season being played behind closed doors. Goodness, hope not. If this was the case, do you think financially Wolves would have to sell a top player or players to balance the books? I don't think so. Purely... Because everybody's going to be in the same position here, right? Everybody's going to be struggling financially. I think we're going to see transfer fees plummet considerably because 
without income generated by fans, that's a huge part of it, of everybody's budget. And it's not just going to be Wolves. It's not just going to be English teams. It's going to be European teams as well. So I don't think so. They will have to be careful with finances. And we've discussed the sporting director role and the fact they haven't replaced Kevin Thelwell. And I think money's got a part to play in that as well. You know, you're talking several hundred thousand pounds a year to, to hire someone, particularly someone considered to be one of the leading lights in their field if they really went for it. So... um so there's definitely an issue there, but no, I, I don't think it would necessarily force them to sell because who, who's who's going to be spending sixty million on Adama Traore anyway? Everybody's going to be in the same position, um, and Wolves, as we know, are in a better financial position than most to um, to withstand what's going to be a, a bit of a, a bit of a crisis in the in the few coming months. What about those words from from uh, Raúl Jiménez? about if Real Madrid or Barcelona came calling, then um, something like it'd be difficult to turn them down or something, which got translated into a sun tweet as, as a come and oh get me God. plea or something, wasn't oh, it? Oh, that tweet. Oh, it was embarrassing. <laughs> what was that? Oh, I, think the tw- I think the tweet said, Jimenez, Jimenez says he's ready to leave Wolves or something along those lines. It was embarrassing. But no, he, he just he's been speaking a lot lately and he's been speaking about his future as well um, pretty, pretty regularly. And he said if Barcelona or Real Madrid... Work came in for him. He'd he'd find it hard to say no, but I think that applies to ninety nine point nine percent of footballers in the planet, really. So he's obviously been put on the spot. And if I was him, I'd probably I'd probably leave it for now. All this talk about his future. I think um, everybody knows what a good player he is. And if if clubs come in for him, they come in for him. But um, but all this talk of where and where he would go and wouldn't go, it's probably not very helpful. I've got the tweet now. It says, uh, Man United transfer target Raul Jimenez says he would jump at the chance to leave Wolves. And Dave oh, Harrison at Black Country Kid, formerly of the Express and Star, of course, the biggest Wolves fan you'll ever meet, written books, well, at least a book. I'm sure many more. <laughs> he had quite a go back. Go on, Dave, get in there. Now, our guest on the Molyneux View podcast this week is one of only three directors on the board and a lifelong Wolves supporter as well. He travels home and away to almost every game and is a key figure in representing Wolves in opposing clubs, boardrooms and beyond. We are delighted to have John Goff on the Molyneux View. Hi, John. Hi, Jackie. Now, your love of Wolverhampton Wanderers goes back a very long way. I don't want to give your age away, but it was a long time ago that you went to your first game. And it was a special one, wasn't it? Funny enough, it wasn't actually my first game. Wolves has been almost part of my life since I was practically born. My mother was a, an orthopaedic physio at um, Patsall. Uh, it used to be a rehabilitation centre before it was a golf course and a residences. And they used to do mainly orthopaedic uh, rehab. And one of the um, her patients was Jimmy Mullen. <laughs> and then next patient was my father and the rest history. They met at Patsall and they were all friends together. And I grew up um, knowing Jimmy Mullen, or be aware of him, before I ever went to a football match. We lived on the Codsall Road uh, and I was not far from where Billy Wright lived in Burland Avenue. Um, Billy was captain of England at the time, and he would often stand at the bus stop at Claregate. And my father's business was in the centre of Wolverhampton, and quite often you can imagine it: the captain of England to get 105 caps used to be picked up in my father's van and taken to Molyneux occasionally. Not my father was quite friendly with Arthur Colley as well, who was Mrs. Colley's other son, who was Billy Wright's landlady. So there was this sort of contact before ever I went to a football match. 
But my first game, I remember it because Dad said, Mr. Wright is playing in his last game. And it wasn't a, a, a full a first division game. It was a retirement game. And um, that was in the 59-60 season when he retired. And that was the first real game. I, 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 I may have gone to one before that, but that one I remember very vividly because Mr. Wright, as I was told, was, was a very special player. Of course he was. And actually, I know it's the date now because I helped Vicky with her father's testimonial a few months ago, which you were involved with a little bit, Jackie. And um, that's yeah. so I actually know the date, the 8th of August, 1959. Wow. So the first international captain to 100 caps used to go to work in your Yeah, he did. And, and, and it's right. <laughs> that's quite a claim well, to fame. You can't imagine it, can you? A captain of England waiting at a bus stop to go to work. And what was Molyneux like in those days? Well, it was um, the cowshed, uh, uh, the North Bank and the South Bank. South Bank was really big. Cowshed was wooden. And then there was the enclosure where you went when you were a, a young lad because you, you could be quite safe there. The South Bank was huge and, and you couldn't oft, often see see the games because um, because it was so cramped. But I, I used to go initially, I suppose, to the enclosure, which was a family enclosure. Then when I was playing football myself with my friends I'd go to the cow shed uh, occasionally the South Bank but I preferred the cow shed and then which is now um, the, the Stan Curly stand of course and then my dad had and my uncle Douglas had a four season tickets in Molyneux stand and and we eventually ended up going with dad as season ticket holder just under the clock in the Molyneux stand which is now proudly uh, on top of the um, Sir Jack Hill stand it was a great atmosphere. What sort of crowds were there then? It varied. I mean, there were the big crowds, you know, the 50,000s. If you looked at the average of the 50s, there were, there's 50 and 60,000 there. But sometimes it was low as 30, but low, and 30 was low. But the thing I remember watching as a young lad was when the players came out of the Waterloo Road stand, Stan Cullish used to stand just by where the players ran out, and, and he would kick every ball and it was almost as much fun watching Stanley Stan Cullis as it was the game because he would be kicking the fence he'd be kicking the oh he was he was amazing to watch he was very passionate so those are the sort of things I remember about the stadium in those days was it noisy like really noisy when you say sort of 50,000 in there I'm trying to picture it without having the sort of segregation that we have well now. it was really noisy of course yes and, and of course with so many people I remember I mean, remember we, we lived in um, off the Codsell Road in those days and we would drive to Whitmarines, Hunter Street or somewhere like that, which was, of course, the crowds were so big that you couldn't get near the stadium with a car for those who had them. And, and but, the, but people poured out of all these roads and all these houses. It was all very local. And um, you, the anticipation of walking through Whitmarines into the, into the stadium it was just fabulous and I, I, I it was just um, the whole you could you could tell if you weren't if you're outside the ground because of the noise whether it was a corner a goal they scored you know you you, you could you could hear it all around the city or the town as it was then <laughs> it was the town as it was then who were the players that you loved watching in particular uh well my player my era really it wasn't the 50s because i was quite young then but my 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 favorite players were 
I love Mike Bailey. I mean, it, when he came, I, he, I, I just thought he was a fantastic uh, captain and the barrel chested when we brought him from Charlton. And actually, one of the greatest privileges of being a, a, a director are, are, is that you get to meet some of the older players w- as, as friends. That you're, I, you know, you, the people you idolised in the sixties and seventies, and less so in the eighties, uh, because funny enough, the players were probably not so well known then. But but you you got to be friends with these, and Mike and Barbara Bailey are good friends now. I mean, they but Mike was probably my my favourite player, and I also liked, I loved a fullback called Bobby Thompson. He was lightning. He was, he was incredibly quick player. I don't know why. I, I, I was a goalkeeper myself, so um, and I played for Claregate, Wolfram College, my university eventually, and uh, I used to like, uh, and I was trained, coached by uh, Fred Davis. Fred had a Fred was the cat Mark Two. You know, he was he took over. Uh, in the early 60s, mid-60s, and he used to give me goalkeeping coaching. So I was quite a big fan of Fred Davis and and, and, and Terry Wharton. I love Terry Wharton. And Wharton and Hinton were fabulous wingers. Uh, uh, those are the players I sort of really idolised, I suppose. It's it's so difficult, I know. In fact, it's almost impossible to compare eras, but it is, it's one that the fans love talking about. I wonder... How many of the current players would kind of fit into your sort of all-time Wolves eleven, and and how do they compare with the best that you've seen? It is difficult. Um, it is really difficult, but I think Joao is special, isn't he? <laughs> Funny enough, we're having this conversation with John Richards and and uh, uh, at a Daventry Wolves party at Christmas, and John was pretty much of the view that Wolves sides of Seventies, particularly, were exceptional sides. Quite a few of them would perhaps fit into the team now, and vice versa. So we'll, we'll take we'll take a Matinho Bailey midfield too. Then that that sounds about right. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so now, John, I mean, you've got all those memories. You've, your passion for the club is undoubted, having um, spent a fair bit of time with you before and, and post match on occasions when you feel it as much as anybody else. But how? Did it come about that you became a member of the board of your beloved club? Well, it, it was a life-changing uh, moment, but how it happened was that Sir Jack used to ring Rachel up. They were great friends, and Rachel's, as we all know, Rachel Hay, hopefully. Yeah, was a wonderful yeah. person. And he used to ring Rachel up and say, um, who's in the boardroom today? And uh, Rachel would probably say something like so-and-so and so-and-so. But the, the board weren't necessarily from for Wolverhampton. Rick was in the Bahamas and the other directors had very busy uh, lives. They came to games, but they couldn't, they couldn't go to every game. Uh, and so Jack was always really, really wanted the club to be properly represented. And also at that time, he was keen on passing the baton to somebody else. Uh, and so Rachel suggested that he spoke to Kevin Threlfall and myself initially, uh, and then uh, a few weeks later, John Bowater. As uh, we were passionate Wolves fans, we lived in Wolverhampton and we had business experience. Uh, Kevin had just sold uh, his company to um, Tesco. Uh, John Bowater was deputy chairman of a very major PLC. And I think I I, I I was okay. I had a business in Wolverhampton that then was 106 years old. So, so he wanted he wanted fans with 
with a bit of business experience. And um, so we had one or two chats. And then I was going to the pub, uh, the Bernal, at Bernal Green, the Dartmouth Arms, which you probably know, Jackie. Yeah. It was a Friday, and I got a phone call saying, um, John, after, this was a, f- a few weeks or a month, month or two after having an initial chat with Sir Jack. He said, I'd like you to join the board, John. And um, along with Kevin at that time, uh, and um, so I'd like you to join the board, but I, I, I'm going back to the Bahamas on Sunday, but I really like it if I could let me know by Sunday. And I, I nearly fell off my chair, and um, I was so excited. I said, but Sir Jack, I don't need to wait till Sunday. It's been an absolute privilege of my life to, 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 to be on a board with you. And, uh, and that was it. And it was a phone call on a Friday night going to the pub. I couldn't believe it, to be truthful. Then you've got your first game. Was, you know, my first match was Plymouth Argyle away, bank holiday, August. So I remember sitting in the chair because Sir Jack wasn't there. Jez was, wasn't there that day. Uh, and uh, almost acting chairman for the day. And um, I couldn't believe it. I, I spent my hell on. I said, pinch me. Said, this, this can't be true. <laughs> I was that excited. And that was 14 years ago. So it's 14 years you've ago. been through, yeah. is, it, is it three yeah, three different ownerships. Yeah, the, 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 as soon as we, we, we got on the board, the three of us, John and, and well, the three new guys plus Jess, Kevin and I were in the chairman suite and and we were playing, it was December 2006. We knew we were playing Norwich and Helen's mum, Connie, was a big fan of Delia Smith and she knew she was going to be there. Little did we know that Delia Smith's very good friend was Steve Morgan. And um, so Steve came first into the chairman's suite with Delia. Uh, And, of course, mother-in-law was keen to meet Delia, and I was keen to meet, uh, and Kevin and I were keen to meet Steve because I knew him. He's a bit younger than me, but not much. Uh, And I followed his career, you know, I mean, same same industry. So I knew him and I knew of him. And he was talking about Liverpool and he couldn't do the due diligence on Liverpool and he said oh Man City were after him as well and I said well we're for sale why don't you have a look at us and, and we sh- we shoved some accounts in his pocket uh, and um, the rest history there's a little bit of debt there but not very much the club was uh, well run he was really impressed with it and we talked to Steve for four or five months and then he bought the club Delia Smith, that's uh, that's quite a story, John. And, and what about then fast-forwarding a, a few years on from Steve Morgan selling on to Foson? How did that all come about? Well, you had Steve on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and he's probably explained about why he wanted to sell. So I won't particularly want to go into that. But the, the, the thing that Steve wanted, he's the one and Jez that did the deal with Foson. But the, the thing that he wanted... I believe he wanted a company with a good structure. Steve was always keen on running the, the business. He, he remember he, he built a public company up. He he, he wanted um, to run it on, on proper business lines, and I don't think he was ever so keen on giving it to a selling it to an individual this time. He wanted something with somebody with some deep pockets who were who were uh, very passionate and put some safeguards in there you know to make sure that the the investment went into the business and Foson uh, he, he also sold it at a price he didn't let uh, I mean he's conscious Steve was always conscious of the deal that Jack did for him you know they 
the 10 pounds and 30 million in I, I did watch the 30 million a lot of people say oh did he put the money and i actually was sitting in jed jesse's office when the 30 million hit our bank but the fosun were very keen they he was keen to he sold it at a price that allowed them to invest heavily into the club to get it where it is today he didn't i mean the price that steve sold to uh, Fosun was considerably less than, for for example, some of our neighbours, uh, considerably less, which allowed Fosun the chance to really stick some money in and get us up quickly, and which they've done. And they are brilliant owners, and they're very, very ambitious uh, for the club. That of no doubt, so incredible. The whole culture of the club has changed an awful lot as well, hasn't it, in, in the past few years? And I, I wondered how important is it to have. Um, a local voice and local presence like yourself and John Bowater in a in a senior capacity at the club. You know, you understand the club and the city or the town, as people still call it. How important is, is that local presence? I, I, su- I suppose t- t- the honest answer to that is you, you'd better ask Steve and Sharon Gore and Jeff Shee, but I actually think that it is very important because I'm not su- sure it's just the fact you're local. I think it's the passion. I think to to represent your your football club, as well as from a business perspective, which is you, you do that through board meetings. But you've got to love it, you know. You've you, you, you and I think to have some people around you, and there's a lot of people in, at Wolves with the same passion. It isn't just the board. There's a it's a fantastic club in that the most people who work for it would they won't work for nothing. Nobody works for nothing, but they love being there. They're part of it. Wolves is a, a, a wonderful family. There's some wonderful people working in it. And they all do it for out of love and, and a job, but they do it a, a lot out of love. And I think people local, fans, passion, that's what local that's what localism does, I think. And I think it's hugely important. Because football has changed, you know, it's 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 massively changed from you know, Wath Wanderers, Ron Flowers and and, and all, uh, uh, coming in and our nursery sides up there, Billy Wright from Ironbridge, all the local people. So Jack always wanted local talent, but, it, but it, as he said many times, it does move on. So having local people who know, have local contacts, love the club, I think it's important. And especially as far as you're concerned, John, uh, because you represent Wolves at a lot of the away fixtures in the Europa League now, which no doubt is a labour of love for you, isn't it? But <laughs> Well, Jackie, can you imagine it? I mean, you're a Wolves fan. And then if you, somebody told me, I, I remember I, I, there's a football sports club, which I'm, I'm a vice president of, Daventry Wolves, a great bunch of guys. And every year we have this dinner. I, I love doing it. I stand up and chat about view from the boardroom well this time i i said well i'm going to talk to you about being a wolves fan in europe representing your team home and away throughout this this wonderful journey from the first game we played in um crusaders to the last one in olympiacos i spoke to them about the way the structure the planning you know the organization the itinerary you know you've got matt and steve and the police, they go out a few days before the game. The, the chef goes out. Sometimes even the coach goes out. The coach being the transport coach two two days before. I mean, if you'd said to me, I'm going to be going to a private airport 
Birmingham, uh, our 737, 55 seater 737, with all the seats with Wolves logos on them, uh, with your own customs that go with the players, the manager, the medical team, the medias, fan liaison, security, all these people on the plane. There's lots of this protocol in Europe where you go out there, you, you go to a dinner the day before and you entertain and you, you speak. And I've had the privilege of speaking to every uh, at, at all the dinners we've had for every team we've played in Europe this year. And I talk about Wolves and, and Wolverhampton, our history, and I research the history of their club and see if there's any similarities. I did I did struggle with Barcelona and Wolverhampton a little bit, finding too many, but there are some... There are, some similarities that you meet the directors you, and then you do it home and away you know you, we, we we would entertain we've entertained all our people at the italian uh, restaurant at compton and um, it was a challenge we were, I was a little bit worried about how torino would go with our our italian restaurant in wolverhampton but it really went well and then after the game back on the plane back on the plane straight after the game after they've had to warm down and we're I've been home from I got home from Turin quicker than I ever got back from Newcastle or Manchester United. Um, the people we've met, I mean, the Crusaders, they were Northern Ireland, an Irish team, they were great. Punyik, well, that was an experience. Uh, we had forty-eight fans there, and before the game, I was walking around the stadium, and suddenly the army came, the police. They had about four and a half thousand army there for our forty-eight fans. And I thought, this is a bit over. Oh, I know we're a tough in Wolverhampton, but blimey. But what had happened is 20 or 30 years before that, an English side I think, had been to Yerevan, which was where the game was played. And that, that, in those days, it wasn't, they didn't have a great great time, so they were very careful. But nevertheless, 4,000 to 48 was pretty, pretty remarkable. It's been a, a wonderful experience. So you've enjoyed it, John. I mean, it's it's a wonderful experience for you, but you're not going around Europe as a fan, are you? It's not just that. You are actually providing valuable input into the club. I mean, you have a background in construction. You run a construction company. So you'll know all about the challenges that the club has at the moment in terms of acquiring land, satisfying local landowners, etc., whilst trying to improve the club and the ground and the infrastructure. That must be pretty useful to them. I was really keen when the, the uh, Sir Jack bought the club and I followed I follow very closely the construction of the stadium. And I, of course, went to the opening, that opening night when the electricity went off. <laughs> um, but um, it, I went, and I also have built part of it myself, uh, and my, uh, my own company. We built the club shop. I remember Sir Jack Jonathan was the chairman, and he said, I want that open for Christmas uh, because I want to get the Christmas Sam Manchester City game. So we built the club shop, which is now the ticket office. And it was a bit of a struggle because underneath it was the were the foundations for the old floodlights, which was first floodlights in English football, and we had to break those out, and that took that knocked us back a bit, but we we still managed it. I was very quite involved with uh, Steve Jez, and uh, over the training ground, that was uh, that was a, a fabulous um, project because we were looking for an extra pitch for the training ground. Uh, and there was a bit of land, St. Edmund's School next door. I happened to be at lunch with um, Sir Jeff Hampton and Jez and I, and there was, I actually said, well, how are you getting on with those horse residents in town? He said, oh, well, we've, 
we need to close Compton to to fill them. So th then we thought, wow, okay, so they're going to move out of Compton. So anyway, cut a long story short, we we uh, we bought the school. The school moved into Compton. We were we did all the sums, and the sums were a little bit short. And then and then we got some really good planners in, and and um, Steve bought the land that uh, adjacent to it to 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 make sure that the whole thing stacked up and we could make it work and and uh, thankfully it did and it's a so i was very involved with that most most site meetings i went onto the training ground and, and 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 continue today i mean we're doing a lot of um planning work on the on, on what we want to do now it's uh, work in progress as we say in construction it's whip <laughs> you say um it's work in progress, John. It's probably something I get asked about more well, than any other subject by, by fans. <laughs> well, no, but well, no, 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 not not in terms of that, but more in terms of the thought process that goes into the decisions that are being made, and Molyneux in particular. Does it present um, a difficult construction challenge, particularly the steeple stand with with the land that surrounds it, the subway, the university, etc.? Can you just talk us through, you know, the the thought process behind behind how how the decisions come about as to what happens next? Well, the decisions fundamentally uh, start with the business case. I mean, you look at, you know, w what what does the market, what do the, what do the fans want? How big should the stadium be? Uh, what what premium seating? How much how much should there be? Uh, some of it um, hospitality. How much standing now? We've got standing. So you look at it from the totally from the business case. The there isn't really too many obstacles in actually construct when we come up fight with the final uh, stadium it, it, it's it's not uh, too difficult from a construct construction point of view to be truthful Tim it, it's a fairly sensible so the important thing is uh, both from Wolves perspective and the city is that it, it stays there which it will and, and, and it's it's a vital part of the regeneration of Wolverhampton. The, you know, the city council are well be, are well behind us. Uh, the university, we, we we are working together on 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 the future. But it's a at the moment it's um, it's cautious. We want to go as far as we can with a with a with a football team. It's not going too badly so far on the the football front, is it? But you couldn't have imagined it would have gone as as well as it has as quickly as it has under Nuno. I personally wouldn't, Jackie, because actually people say you can't buy a team, but he's put a team in very quickly, didn't he? I, and I don't think many people would have thought you could put a team in of the the quality that we have in such a short space of time. Remarkable, I think. A Nuno's team, the backroom team, who've got to know. I get to know them better because of the touring around Europe, because you have breakfast and dinner, so you get to know them a lot better than you you have otherwise would. John, obviously, um, we see we see forever seeing changes, um, uh, quite a lot of changes on the board in recent years. Recently, we've seen Kevin Thelwell and Sky Sun leave the board, and which leaves yourself, Jeff Shee and John Bowater. Does that does having a board size of three does that does that for someone who's a complete novice on the subject does that kind of simplify? matters or, or you know how, how does it change regarding how many people you have on the board well we had three initially but it isn't just around the boardroom table there are more than that 
in, in terms of meetings. I mean, the, there's the man, the football side manager. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a financial side. There's a marketing side. It, 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 a lot of the work is done outside of board meetings. Board meetings are governance. They are their strategy, perhaps a bit more, but but they're not running the club effect. The clubs run departmentally through a uh, through a, on a day by day basis. So whether it's three or four, I, I suspect there's an opening with three. I mean, I, I haven't spoken to Jeff, so I don't know what his thoughts are since Guy went, but I'm sure he has them. John, how desperate are you for football to resume? <laughs> are you just the same as everybody else? Of course I'm desperate. I, I mean, I, I don't, the trouble is, I don't know how it will. I'm, I'm probably like everybody. I can't see what it's going to look like. To, can you, I mean, you know as much as, almost as much as I do, how you envisage it. It, it's of course I want it to happen. I I want this whole scenario to stop. Uh, but it, I've I mean I've got a company in my own construction business in Wolverhampton. We're we're flat out, but we are building unfortunately ICUs and and um, isolation wards and throughout the whole Midlands. With, uh, and that's something I wish. On one hand, you want to work, but on the other hand, you wish it was something else. Uh, how? Uh, but we can, on construction sites, you can separate, you can distance, you can. It's easier to sort out. I, I, I do want it. To, of course, I want it to start. It's terrible what's going on, but it's got to come back. And we've all got to be. It's got to be safe, hasn't it? And safe. And do you remember the game at Olympiacos? Uh, uh, did you watch it? Did either you both watched it? I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But I was there, John. It was horrible. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say to him, you were. I didn't go. I mean, I was, it was horrible, wasn't it? Imagine the whole season of that. I, I don't. No thanks. You don't want it, do you? <laughs> but then it's better than it's better than missing out to Sheffield United on uh, sort of average points across the season, isn't it? But that's that's a whole other debate. John, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern New View. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been uh, been pleasurable. Thank you. Lovely to hear the passion from a Wolves director there, Tim. What did you take away from that? Passion is the word, isn't it? I think he's the most passionate guest we've had on so far. And just lovely to hear how much he loves the club and represents the club with with that passion and that warmth and that knowledge. And uh, yeah, great stories from the old days. I I can't envisage Stan Cullis kicking kicking every ball on the touchline. I don't know why, but you you never see any footage of him or any pictures of him moving around. So... I just imagined he would stand there cross 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 armed, but um, but yeah. So that was nice, <laughs> nice little trip down memory lane, and yeah, as 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 he was suggesting, you know, he plays a really important part in the stadium development, um, and has done for many years. And the word he used was cautious, which I think seems to sum up really well, really, um, in terms of. And also, he said it's not logistically very difficult to to redo the stadium which I thought was very interesting because you do you do kind of think of the land behind the Steve Bull has been a very complicated area but he suggests not and it's very much a case of yeah as he said being cautious and I guess having the fans first you know rather than rather than the other way around rather than building a, a 50,000 seat stadium that that's only going to be 35 40,000 people in it so really interesting and um I liked what he was saying about the importance of a, of a presence on a local bo- on a, of a local man on a board who understands the club and the town, 
and I think that's pretty rare in 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 top end football these days. So so Wolves are really lucky to have him and John Bowater. Yeah, I think Wolves fans will be reassured hearing some of those words yeah. from John Goff there. Uh, on to a few tweets before we finish, Tim. Swiss Old Gold, Simon Hill, regular listener. Thank you, Simon. He highlighted your tweet from the 1st of June 2017. He says, can oh, we yeah, trust our that. first impressions? I think yours were pretty good because you'd said on Twitter, first Nuno impressions, personable, methodical, enthused by the challenge, emphasis on organisation, training and improvement, a disciplinarian. You're Bob on, weren't you? <laughs> hey? I mean, you, you don't want to hear what I said about you the first time I met you, to be honest. But um, I'm sure. I think we did have a tweet somewhere about what would our first impressions be if we were speed dating. I wasn't going to mention that, but seeing <laughs> she brought it up, you don't want to know. You don't want to know. Uh, no, no. Yeah, that was that was a weird day. They had like an open training session at, at Compton Park, and they erected a small stand, and people could come come and watch. And I think that was his idea, actually. I think that was Nuno's idea. So, um, yeah, I remember him being desperate to get started. Uh, or maybe that was just desperate not to speak to the press, so he was in a bit of a rush, But um, which started as a mean to go on. Kieran Barker, what were Tim's best slash favourite Wolves moments as a Wolves reporter before Nuno came in? Oh, blimey. Um, yeah, I mean, it was interest- an interesting first couple of years. I started in 2015. First pre-season in France. In fact, that's got that's got to be a highlight. Go, driving all the way to France near Paris to cover a couple of games, and and having been a fan for twenty years, and then all of a sudden I'm interviewing Kenny Jacket and Kevin McDonald and Nua Dicko, and you know I'd been singing their names a couple of months earlier. So that was as um, that was a great start. And as inductions go, the first couple of years, I mean, Steve Morgan put the club up for sale a couple of months after I started, and then Kenny Jacket was in trouble that year, and. A phobie was sold, and then Foson came in, and three managers in a year, twelve players, just bonkers, really. Um, Most of those but, things seem to happen while you were in a pub after two bottles of wine. By oh the way, you seem to tell us every single week. I think I told you my Kenny Jacket story, haven't I? Because he mm-hmm. got sacked at half eleven on a Friday night. Yeah, only five times, but well, let's hear it again. Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. So, what was your um, favourite moment then? Favourite moment has probably got to be Anfield in the FA Cup when they won two one. That was just an unbelievable day. Just the sight of eight thousand Wolves fans at the Anfield Road end. It was, um, yeah, that was a fantastic day all round. I love it when I'm reporting on Wolves and and they score the winner in stoppage time, and that that's the time when your super professional head comes on, and literally no part of my body or brain would flinch, apart from thinking who passed to whom, how many yards out, paint the picture for the supporters listening or the viewers, and. Um, and bottle it all up until after the game, and then then that's it. You switch off your headphones, you switch off your ISDN kit, you pack it all up, you look around, check the uh, opposition team's um, staff are looking away, and then you give it a little fist pump under the table. But keep it professional, quite hard at times. At Tom Martin 5, have Wolves players been underappreciated in the awards that have been handed out for this season so far? Now, not many have been, but there has been one, of course, from The Athletic, the end-of-season awards. Yeah, we did our end of season awards, and, and Jimenez was second in the most underrated player category, which I think probably just sums it up really from Wolves' point of view. That yes, they are still underrated. Um, it'll always be that way. If you're not if you're not playing for a top four or top six club, then you're always going to go underappreciated in the awards. I mean, uh, 
Buendia at Norwich has had a phenomenal season, but no one will talk about him because he plays for the bottom club. Whereas if he played for Man City and people were finishing his chances he was creating, then everyone would be raving about him. So I think there's um, there's definitely more attention on him and Ezra Traore in, in particular this season for, for what they've done. And there's definitely recognition of um, Wolves, but yeah, not so much in the end of season awards, I don't think. I think Wolves fans are quite happy not to have too much high yes, level recognition true. across the board. Just, just keep them keep them under the radar and keep them in Wolverhampton, ideally. Uh, and Jade, finally, in an alternative reality, which manager from Turner onwards would you pick to manage this current squad if Nuno wasn't around? So you've got the likes of Mick McCarthy, Kenny Jackett. Well, you've got loads more. Mark McGee, Colin Lee, Dave Jones. Um, Stala so Solbakken tough. perhaps bearing in mind his Champions uh, League experience I know Wolves fans can't uh, stand him but that's only because of the what he was trying to get the players to do when they weren't capable uh, yeah. or willing to play it's that style it's a good point it's a good point. And along those lines, I'd say Glenn Hoddle wouldn't, wouldn't be a worse shout. You know, there we go. Uh, yeah. We had, say, Ole last week saying he's he's the best coach he's ever worked for. And, and he was he worked really well with England. I mean, they were so unlucky to lose to Argentina, but everyone was very happy with him as, as England manager because he was he was um, coaching better players. I think he probably struggled with, with players that weren't up to the standard that he played that himself, which you often get with top players. So, but... Was Graham Taylor as well, of course. Graham Taylor. Ugh. Um, I'll probably say Mick McCarthy just about overall because his man management was so good. You say Mick and, McCarthy um, to coach this group of I players don't now? Know. Well, you say you? coach though. You say coach. Man- well, manage, do the job that he was doing when he was manager. Terry Connor coaching. What do you reckon? I would say if Who's we could have Glenn, Glenn, Hodler's, Glenn Hodler's coach and Mick McCarthy's mm. manager. <laughs> that would be fun, wouldn't it? That would <laughs> yeah, be fun. they wouldn't get on with that. Just made that happen. <laughs> <sighs> That's a great question, Jay, by the way. That is a great question. Well, question. But can we have your answer as well, please? Uh, yeah, I'd say Glenn Hoddle because I think they'd massively... I mean, speaking to players who've seen Glenn speak to them, I'm lucky enough to travel around France and Russia with Glenn and seen the reaction of England players. They hang on his every word. And I know what people say about man management, not necessarily his forte and what have you. I get that. But, um, well... The respect and and these players would be able to do exactly what he wants them to do. No disrespect to previous ones, but they weren't his players, were they? He wasn't there long enough to mm, yeah. to do that. So uh, <clears throat> I'll go, Glenn. Very interesting. On to other news. Uh, Wolves women denied certain promotion, of course, from the fourth tier. Desperately disappointing. But they're doing the virtual challenge. The players and the staff will be travelling a distance of 5,331 miles from Compton, Wolverhampton, the home of Compton Care, formerly Compton Hospice, and the Wolves training ground to Compton, California, by either running, cycling, rowing or walking. Uh, Compton Care providing palliative care and supporting hundreds of families at their most difficult times. So go to at Wolves women for info on that and updates they're doing a brilliant job a uh, carl henry's gofundme page he is doing incredibly well if you've been following this the number of signed shirts and what have you that he's getting to auction and to raffle off which is good because it means people can actually afford to have a pop he's edging closer to his fifty thousand target he sent me an update so thanks carl for that They've raised over £45,000, including gift aid, Wolves Foundation auctions and offline donations. Louise Cobbold, who did those 
the amazing artwork for all the uh, programmes that you will have seen. Denise Dennison, Robbie's wife, kindly donating wonderful paintings, currently being raffled. And Steve Plant from Matchworn already donated the proceeds of a signed Connor Cody shirt, which was over £5,000. Loads of former players as well donating. Uh, Jolene Lescott signed Match shirt from the 2003 playoff final as well. That's got a lot of attention. Um, not surprisingly, information on the auction, all the raffles can be found on Carl's Twitter page, which is at CarlHenry08. And we have to say happy 50th birthday to the great Susie Perry. She was 50 on Sunday, which was 50. just... You would never have Susie Perry down at 50, 50 in a million years. Not, not that there's anything wrong with being 50, but she just looks amazing, full stop, regardless of uh, however many miles are on the clock. So happy birthday, Susie. Hope you had a good time. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Jackie. You look quite shell-shocked. You don't look shell-shocked. You look very horizontal on your sofa, which I'm convinced you've not moved from. I was having such on, a nice time your... listening, listening to John that I gradually started slumping along the sofa instead of being oh. sat upright. No, it's been a great oh. pod. I really enjoyed it. It has been fun, hasn't it? And thanks for getting dressed for us today. You uh, you don't need to bother now for another seven days. So that's great. Cheers, Tim. Thank you, of course, to John Goff. We're very grateful for his time. And a reminder that you can read all of Tim's hard work free for 90 days. If you're not already a subscriber, you go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash Wolves pod. Thank you for listening to The Molyneux View. We'll be back 5am next Tuesday on your regular podcast platform. Thanks for subscribing. Bye for now. Thank you.